This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. I'd like to thank our sponsors who make our podcast possible. We take our podcast with the ongoing support of Raider and Jason Sikora, our sound engineer. Raider is a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. Iberia Bank and First Horizon, who are now one bank. Two relationship-driven banks, both leaders in the industry, have officially joined forces. The combination of Iberia Bank and First Horizon creates a leading financial services company dedicated to enriching the lives of their clients, associates, and their communities. I'd also like to thank Lafayette General Health, who has joined the Oshner Health family and is now Oshner Lafayette General. As one health system, Oshner Lafayette General will provide expanded services and enhanced care from the familiar faces you already trust. Oshner Lafayette General means more resources to help solve healthcare's toughest problems, reinvesting in our communities, and being further committed to health and wellness. Oshner Lafayette General, together means more. Learn more today at togethermeansmore.org. Dr. Stephen Barnes, director of the Kathleen Babineau Blanco Public Policy Center, joins us today. Dr. Barnes is also an associate professor of economics in the B.I. Moody III College of Business. He serves as the independent economist on the Louisiana Revenue Estimating Conference, a forecasting panel that sets income projections used to create the Louisiana state budget. Previously, Dr. Barnes spent 10 years in the Department of Economics at LSU. He has led studies on many topics related to the Louisiana economy, education, the coast and environment, and health, as well as health care. He earned a PhD in economics from UT at Austin. Dr. Barnes, I hope I can just call you Stephen. Please welcome. Do. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank welcome you for having me. To Discover Lafayette, and welcome to my home. You've met, as many others have, our our pets, <laughs> Katie and Lemon. So thank you for being patient with me as we work through coming out of COVID. Absolutely. Well, these are the joys joys of working from home, which yeah. I've been uh, managing as well for mm-hmm. the last year or so. I like it. I mean, it's nice. It can be awkward, like I said, when you've got a dog that barks or something. But for the most part, it seems like people have been chugging along. And I know that's part of what you're doing, not only in teaching economics, but working to look at how we can improve policy in our state. So I've been looking forward to meeting you and, and hearing your story. If you can talk about, I guess, maybe your first your early career, you grew up in Baton Rouge and went to LSU and then studied, you got a higher education in economics. That's right. Uh, so I'm originally from Louisiana. My family is sort of from everywhere else. My, mm-hmm. my dad is from Mississippi uh, and my mom is from Massachusetts. Um, and then our extended family has kind of just moved throughout the country. So I think uh, we were new to Louisiana. didn't really have a lot of family nearby, but but very easily and quickly put roots down. Um, and it's I, I really love Louisiana and uh, am so happy to have an opportunity to come back and work here professionally. Right. 
Right. So we were talking before the interview started. Um, first of all, let's get into the revenue estimating. I want to spend the bulk of our interview on what you're doing with the Blanco Policy Center. But one of your jobs, which is pretty high profile, is serving on that uh, Louisiana Revenue Estimating Conference. And so you were actually nominated when you were still at LSU and then made the decision you were hired to come over here almost two years ago. So you've you're, you're really working for the state. It's not like it's for one region, that, that's that right. job that you're doing. Th- that's absolutely right. And uh, I grew up in Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. uh, went to LSU for my undergraduate degree, and then went out of state for graduate school. I went to the University of Texas at Austin. Mm-hmm. And so it was partly through connections I had with with faculty at LSU that got me the position to come back to Louisiana and, and work at LSU, mm-hmm. but always took that... Uh, position and, and and took the approach as one of service to the state. And we did work throughout the state um, and, and really traveled around the state in order to make sure that we had a good perspective on what was happening in different parts of the state and, uh, and, and make sure that we were thinking about bigger picture challenges mm-hmm. and solutions that we can all work together uh, towards addressing some of the state's bigger challenges. Who else serves on the Revenue Estimating Conference? How, Who's appointed and how does that work? So the Revenue Estimating Conference is made up of four positions. The President of the Senate, uh, the Speaker of the Louisiana House of Representatives, a, the Governor or his designee, which mm-hmm. has historically been filled by the Commissioner of Administration, uh, and then this independent economist role. Mm-hmm. And so those four positions are, are it. And the, the design here is to make sure that the process of establishing how much money we think the state will have mm-hmm. is done independently of the budgeting process. Okay. And so making that independent is a way to make sure that it, we've at least started with a realistic picture of how much money we think the state has to spend, mm-hmm. um, and, and then the politics can start. <laughs> so the, the design there requires every vote to be unanimous. Oh. Um, so the, there has to be a consensus view on what the, the best mm-hmm. outlook is for the state. Um, and in that regard, certainly having that independent economist on the Revenue right. Spending Conference is important to make sure that, you know, that, that the, uh, the other positions aren't taking more too much of a political or, mm-hmm. or uh, strategic position there, that there is somebody who's there that right. has an ability to, to kind of keep the plan on track, so to speak. So you all will look and see, um, I know I want to ask about COVID in a second, these stimulus monies coming in, but you'll look and see, this is how much we estimate taxes will bring in, uh, federal monies that are projected to come in for Medicaid, that kind of thing, and say we estimate $30 billion. I don't even know what our budget is, but you'll look and say, I think we can have a budget of this many billion dollars. That's right. And and the 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 majority of our time is spent looking at the state general fund. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the money that comes into the state is either federal money that's matching some state dollars um, or money that's been dedicated to certain uses. So mm-hmm. that state general fund is really the the core part of the budget. Where you have some flexibility. The, exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and so that state general fund is more in the neighborhood of about $10 billion um, uh, out of that bigger $30-plus billion total budget for the state. Um, And so the way we work through that is really with input from a a big team of folks across state government that help to track 
a lot of this. The trends, yeah, like what, that's what they right. expect. Uh-huh. And and there's really two economists that will that will lead the effort and, and kind of put together um, their own forecasts for each revenue stream and bring those to us for consideration. Mm-hmm. And so as opposed to an economist who's actually developing a, a, my own forecast and, and thinking of all the hard work that's done by uh, by those two economists, at one at the mm-hmm. legislative fiscal office, one at the division of administration. Um, you know, our job is to kind of review those, ask questions, make sure that they are um, considering major factors, and so on, and then make a determination as to which of those two is a more accurate forecast. So this is probably showing my ignorance, but let's say you, you all agree, you know, this is going to be the budget or the projected budget numbers. Does the legislature have to follow that? Do they ever just you know, revolt? Do they just do their own thing? They, they are, have to follow? They are required to follow that. They now, they're, they're not required to spend every dollar. So, no, but I mean, so they, they can't could, just say, we're going to spend another $10 billion. That's correct. They have correct. to stay within that. That's the, correct. They are, they are required to develop a state budget off of the mm-hmm. amount of the, the dollars adopted by the Revenue Estimating Conference. Okay. So with that being said, what is happening this year with all the COVID stimulus monies coming in? I know it's a huge amount of money. How did that change your job, or is that just kept totally separate? Really, uh, that has been kept largely separate. Um, so we're looking at the the state revenues that will be generated through mm-hmm. personal income taxes, sales taxes, corporate income taxes, and so on. And a lot of the federal dollars that we're expecting to, to see come to the state are expansions of federal programs that state agencies can tap into, mm-hmm. or they're dollars that have been directed specifically to a particular program. So if they're dedicated in that fashion, um, that those are not things that we have to forecast and anticipate. Okay. So it's really, you do the, you're not dealing with the one-time monies. It's just the... We're, we're not dealing with a lot out. of those federal mm-hmm. one-time monies that are coming right now. Mm-hmm. That's true. Right, right. Yes. Who would have ever thought when you accepted this position? I mean, everything kind of happened right before COVID, right? That's right. Your I move here and... That's right. I, I, I had been in the position as, as the director of the Blanco Center um, really for just about a half a year mm-hmm. when COVID hit. Uh, and had had one revenue estimating conference meeting <laughs> before the whole world was turned upside down. So it has certainly been a challenging year, uh, as it has been for many people out there. Right. Um, but but in terms of the the kind of business that I do and the work that I do, um, it it has been a very unusual and challenging year. But I'll also say been a, a great year to be reminded of the broad set of support out there mm-hmm. and and the the large number of people who really want to see the best for Louisiana. Right. And I'll say in the, in the early days of COVID, um, I heard from or reached out to and had a chance to talk with economists throughout the state. You know, uh-huh. some of my old friends and colleagues from LSU, uh, others at UL, mm-hmm. uh, and, and even some folks at Tulane and, and other professional economists throughout the state as well. So, you know, really had an opportunity to, to get perspectives from a lot of different people. And I think you know, the, mm-hmm. Yes, I, I sit in that role, but I think there's a, a much broader desire amongst the professional community of economists to try right. and make sure that the state of Louisiana has good input and good guidance That's there. That's good. You wear so many hats. I mean, I know that you're also an associate professor of economics at the Moody College of Business. I know you probably had to teach on Zoom in different ways, but wearing so many hats, has it been hard? to Like how many classes do you teach, Stephen? 
Yeah, they're they're, busy. uh, I've got a lot of balls up in the air at any Mm -hmm. given point in time. I am fortunate that the university really did establish a clear vision for the Blanco Center, which was to to really set this center up um, to have a big role in the state of Louisiana um, and to be able to be a Mm -hmm. big resource uh, for state government, for the legislature. And so in doing that, the design of this director role at the Blanco Center is one that's very much focused on the center uh, and and trying to push forward our research agenda at Mm -hmm. the Blanco Center. So I I teach taught one class last fall. I'll be teaching one class this Mm -hmm. fall. But fortunately, my teaching load is quite light. Right, (laughs) right. Economics really intrigues me. Um, You know, I would play around with it when I was at LSU also. But I didn't. I almost wish I had looked at that as a major because it's just so. It's it's fascinating what people can do when they understand how their actions will play out. And it seems like that's what economists do. You can look at human behavior almost like a psychologist, but then project what's going to happen from a financial standpoint or or a government policy standpoint. And uh, even Dr. Natalie Harder, I don't know if you got Mm -hmm. to know Dr. Harder, but I interviewed her about two or three years back and she was kidding about how she was an economics major. And she's like, what are you going to do with that? And since then I interviewed Dr. Gary Wagner and now you, and it seems like the it's endless what you can do with an understanding of economics. It, it's a great, I, I would say, general degree, but mm-hmm. one that really gives you some tools and a framework that helps you analyze complex problems. Right. Um, so I think absolutely, much more so than a lot of college majors these days, economics does set up students for a broad set of opportunities. Um, but it's core to social science, um, as, mm-hmm. as you suggested. And when I was at college, um, I, I had never really been exposed to economics, never had a class in high school or anything. And my freshman year was looking for one more class to take. Uh-huh. And, and my dad suggested, just try an economics class. I think you'd like it. You're, you kind of like math, but, but you're interested in some of these yeah. topics. Take a class. And um, before the end of my first semester, I knew what I wanted to do with the something? rest of my life. Yeah. Like just uh, um, synchronicity, I yeah, guess. That's yeah, that's right. Well, before we move into the interview about the Blanco a public Policy Center, I'd like to take a break and listen back to our March 2020 interview with Dr. Gary Wagner, which was done right before the COVID shutdown. He's also an economics professor at UL Lafayette and is rather well-known locally. He gives a lot of forecasting and looks back at how our actions affect local government. And during this talk, Stephen, Gary shared his love of research, which he looked at as similar to solving a puzzle. And he actually recommends that all college students take classes in quantitative analysis and coding, as well as economics, so that they can learn how to solve problems. So why don't we take a listen? I, mean, I study state and local tax issues primarily, so I look at how those policies affect decisions. But that, I think, is a good way of thinking about how economists tend to view the world in general. Yeah. Is we, we just look at, so we, we tend to think that, you know, people make the best decisions given the constraints that they face. So when, when you shift the constraints that people face, and maybe some of those would be the laws that are in place, or you change how they're being taxed, well, that's going to change their behavior. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, you know, things that are kind of common nowadays in, in Philadelphia, a couple of years ago, they passed a soda tax, right? So there's a lot of work saying, well, what happens? Well, it pushed a lot of the sales just outside the borders of the city. It did. 
Was right. it a high tax? It was a very high, high tax enough. on soda. Yeah. Oh. And the idea was, you know, thinking that the sugary drinks could yeah. lead to obesity. And so maybe this is something you want to do. Mm-hmm. And so well, it turns out drove to the next uh, city. Exactly. So, so it may not have had the exact effect you wanted because uh-huh. people just kind of changed where they were purchasing the products. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So those, I think those types of questions yeah. are things that I, I, a lot of economists look at. And it's like having a dry county. People just, sure. they'll f- somehow figure out how to buy things. So. Yeah. And in fact, when we lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, there were a number of counties that were, that were dry. Pulaski County, which is mm-hmm. where Little Rock is, was wet. Mm-hmm. And the, it's just funny you mentioned that because there was one liquor store oh, right on the edge of the county line. <laughs> and if you went booming, cl- if you went close to a holiday, I mean, forget it. <laughs> really? Right? Nothing left. Uh, you would just wait forever because it was so <laughs> packed with people. Oh, uh, and that's a case where, you know, those laws probably aren't having the intended mm-hmm. effect that you want. Yeah, but it's helping somebody's bottom line. Welcome back to Discover Lafayette with Dr. Stephen Barnes. In that little clip that you heard with Dr. Gary Wagner can be heard at our website, discoverlafayette.net. I hope you'll listen to the full interview. So let's get into the reason we're here. I am fascinated with what's going on with the Kathleen Babino Blanco Public Policy Center. I know that you've jumped into this full speed. And as we said, you came right before COVID hit, but a lot has been done. I know that you've issued a lot of papers. You've been hosting events where experts talk about energy and different things. Can you tell us maybe how this uh, public policy center began and then what we can look to as the, the center grows? Sure. Thank you. I'm always happy to have a chance to share a little bit more about the background and, and the future plans at the Blanco Center. The Blanco Center really started with Governor Blanco making a decision to donate about 90 boxes mm-hmm. of material from her time in public service to the university. And, and this was a decision that I don't think she took lightly. Um, I think that her time in office coincided with one of the most challenging events, right. if not the most challenging event in recent history, facing the state of Louisiana with Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and I think, you know, there was no way to be fully prepared for an event like that. And then as we look back on that event now, uh, in, in the aftermath of that event, I think we can appreciate the real enormity of the challenges facing mm-hmm. the state with the state's largest metro area entirely incapacitated for months and the second and third largest metro areas um, severely weighed down uh, by evacuees Mm -hmm. and uh, really stretched to their limits in terms of capacity and ability to to bring uh, resources to address this big challenge. So so this was a very challenging time uh, uh, and during that period of time, I think a lot of people grew frustrated with the pace of recovery. Uh, Governor Blanco ultimately decided not to run for re-election. Um, and, I, and it's only been recently, you know, with 10 plus years of hindsight, that I think the public perspective on that has begun to shift. So when she made the choice to say, I want to open these boxes up mm-hmm. and I want to let people see everything, you know, I think that was a really brave thing for her to do, and it, it reflects her sincere commitment to wanting the best for the state of Louisiana. And her hope was that we would continue to learn from that. I think there were a lot of big successes when we look back on that, which have been commemorated over the last several years. 
um, with you know one of the largest rebuilding programs seen in American history mm-hmm. uh, in the Road Home program. Um, and some of the strategic choices she made early on, such as working to restore the Superdome and, right. and keep the Saints, which you know has really been a big part of maintaining and restoring the culture mm-hmm. of, Louis- of Louisiana. Um, so, so her choice to to donate those papers to the university and open them up for researchers to see everything and and continue to learn, um, I think is that was the beginning, <laughs> and and that's something that um, that. I carry with me as sort of an attitude about how we're going to approach problems. Right. We're going to get to the core of them. Um, we're going to bring the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're going to make sure that we can learn from the past and guide the state in the future with well-informed policies based on research, data, uh, and best practices that from mm-hmm. from here and around the country as well. I envy you and your position. I feel as though... This is an incredible opportunity for you to take your background in economics, your love for the state, and also respect for Governor Blanco, what she wanted to do. And if I remember, really, when I think of her, I think education. I know that she was always focused on not only helping people be lifted out of poverty by by having an adequate education, but also honoring our teachers and people in academia and making sure that they were taken care of adequately so that they could stay in that profession. When I looked at what the Blanco Center wants to do, I know that during her career, she looked at, as I said, education, poverty, economic opportunity, criminal justice reform, and all the other things we talked about, um, and governmental ethics. Is there one place where you started? Or are you at the point now, Stephen, where you're still organizing the, the structure of the center? Well, we, we opened our doors mm-hmm. with a broad view of the kinds of things that we'd like to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm fortunate in having been active in Louisiana for 10 years prior to this position. And so I had a handful of projects that were in the works or, mm-hmm. or ideas that were uh, ready to be brought into a, a more formal uh, shape right on day one. So on day one, we had three grants. We were working on a project for the Department of Education, uh, looking at the child care assistance program, which provides um, some subsidies for low-income families to help mm-hmm. access childcare. care. Uh, we were working on some work for the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, looking at Gulf of Mexico oil and gas revenues that are shared with the state. Uh, and we were also doing some work also related to the coast and environment um, with funding from some of the private uh, mm-hmm. nonprofit organizations out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a few projects in the works already. Uh, and and another one that we brought over that was uh, looking at the economic impact of philanthropic activities in the state of Mississippi. Really? So from day one, huh. we were breaking the boundaries and saying, well, you know, we, we want to be working on the kinds of problems mm-hmm. that, that are important and central to Louisiana and our future. Uh, but we want to be doing that at the highest level of quality possible. Right. And, Best and, practices. And, yeah. And we yeah. want to stay engaged at the national level. So uh-huh. we want to be, uh, you know, helping bring solutions that we can identify here and share those broadly, mm-hmm. uh, as well as learning from best practices uh, elsewhere, bring those here uh, right. as well. As you're speaking, I'm thinking of CABLE, Council for Better Louisiana, and then PAR. 
But you're associated with the university, with UL Lafayette, and I know that the the Blanco Public Policy Center, I guess it's a partnership, um, and if I can look at my notes here, I mean, you can probably talk about this a lot better than me, between um, the Edith Garland Dupre Library and the College of Liberal Arts. So being a part of the university of sorts, it, it gives you a different level, I think, a uh, voice to speak. That's right. I think one of the things we're working on actively is trying to get other faculty members engaged in our work mm-hmm. and collaborating. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the center was really developed and based in the College of Liberal Arts because there are several departments there that have natural alignment with right. this type of work. We've got political science, mm-hmm. sociology, history, and psychology. Um, in fact, the first graduate student we hired was, was a master's student in the Department of Psychology. Um, and then with my position in the College of Business, I think we immediately kind of got some broader connections there. Mm-hmm. And over the last uh, last year during COVID, we took advantage of the ease of scheduling Zoom calls and put together a whole series of little roundtable discussions with mm-hmm. faculty around each of our thematic areas. So education, poverty and economic opportunity, health and health care, mm-hmm. the coast and environment, criminal justice reform and, and governmental ethics, which we haven't we haven't put the round table together on that one yet, but getting, trying to get other faculty engaged in this work um, and partnering to, to really tap into that much broader talent pool, not, not only at UL, mm-hmm. but amongst the broader academic community. And so part of how we're making that happen is collaborating on joint grant proposals. Uh, we put in several larger grant proposals over the last few months. Um, and also t- starting to think a little bit about other academic research and opportunities to collaborate on policy briefs or white papers where we can get more people involved in this. So I think that obviously when we think about the broad set of issues that we're looking at, uh, we're not going to have all the answers within the Blanco Center. But the approach we're going to take is bringing those answers to the right group of experts Mm -hmm. and working on that collaboratively, be that across campus at UL Lafayette or across the state or beyond. Right. Um, with us ranking so low in so many, you know, quality of life, the, the, the whole quality of life spectrum, what is your hope? Like, let's, let's, if we can give me one example, like if you're doing a white paper on education or maybe early childhood education, I mean, we all seem to know that we have some issues here and it's not just education. It's the, I guess the interwoven with poverty and generations of poverty and different things. How can you make a difference? Do you bring that to the legislature? Do you bring it to the school systems? Like, how, how would this work? And I know I might seem ignorant, but how can we move no, the needle? This is, is a great question with no easy answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the, these are problems that have been with us for generations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we are sincere about working and making sure that we can really move the needle on these things, but this is not something that we'll accomplish oh, no. on our own right. or quickly. It's, right. Um, but so, so we're taking a multifaceted approach with that. We want to make sure that we're first of all doing the research, whether it be original new studies or helping to synthesize an understanding of what the state of the research is, you know, today amongst mm-hmm. the academic community and, and bringing that research to the decision makers' tables. And, and there are a couple of places where that matters. One is, of course, at the legislature mm-hmm. where policy is made. But 
the other major area that we are engaged and where we want to help inform decision making is across state government, um, where a lot of major programs are are currently being run to target some of these issues, but there's a lot of latitude with how those programs can be run and the way we design them is going to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. And so we've actually just in the last couple of months formalized a partnership with the Department of Child and Family Services where over the next few years, we're going to be working hand in hand alongside the staff Mm -hmm. there, helping to offer guidance from an evaluation standpoint Um, identifying new data that perhaps they should be collecting Mm -hmm. uh, and helping them expand that data collection capacity. And then as that data comes in, doing research and analysis to identify what's working, what's not. Um, And and alongside that, helping to to pull in best practices from elsewhere for Mm -hmm. for each of their different programs. So this is going to be a multi-year collaboration with this department and I think that's a huge opportunity for us to to really bring research to the table to help guide and shape what's being done. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're going to have some big impacts from that. I hope so. I, I'm sure it can be hard to work with bureaucracy because that, that's a big boat to get to to change direction. But you that's can right. you can give them new information and, and like you said, best practices or even gathering data that's current on the ground here in Louisiana to show what's working and what maybe people thought would work and isn't. That's exactly yeah. right. And and I think to, to really make that work, you've got to have a commitment of the leadership at that agency. Um, right. So I think the timing is right now mm-hmm. where we've got that vision where, uh, you know, uh, decision making authority um, folks at the agency know that there's opportunity for improvement. They, they know that research and data driven solutions is going to be the way to go to help mm-hmm. get better outcomes. And, and so they've opened the door to let us come and help in that effort and work collaboratively. Right. Uh, and I think this is going to be, uh, it's a really exciting opportunity for the Blanco Center where we can really mm-hmm. see some results and, and prove the value of informed decision-making and, and management of right. these big state programs. With the um, oil and gas issues going on, you know, last year, the price of oil going below zero, and now it looks like we're going to have other issues. It's like it's all or nothing, bouncing back and forth. But I, I saw that you had just recently uh, led a discussion on LPB along with Beth Courtney, and you were talking to experts in different fields of energy. Could you kind of share some of that? Like, where are we? Um, it, it's It's been a bouncing ball, huh? Yeah, I think it's it's important for people to to, to kind of back up and look a little more closely at some of the timelines, you know? So I think the headline stories would, would make you dizzy when you think about um, some of the wild fluctuations over the last year. Mm-hmm. And just this week, I'm just driving to New Orleans. I had a hard time finding gas. You know, that's been that's in the right. news. Like that's first right. we didn't need gas and now that's right. we can't get it. Yeah. So stepping away from some of mm-hmm. the emergencies of the day, yeah. so to speak, we're, we're clearly partway through a decades-long transformation in the energy sector. And and we are at a point where we're moving away from. We're not shutting down oil and gas, mm-hmm. but we're, we're really moving away from oil and gas and moving towards alternative energy. Um, and this is something that's going to happen slowly over many years. And what we've seen recently, especially with a President Biden stepping in and, and accelerating some of that change, is some you know 
big bumps in the road you know, for Louisiana. Under, yeah, for Louisiana. Yeah. And, and we are unfortunately a state that is going to be, uh, we're going to really struggle perhaps more than any to deal with this. And there's mm-hmm. been a lot of research done about this decades long energy transformation, um, and trying to get a real sense of what the new opportunities for, for employment might be. And certainly there will be new opportunities even for Louisiana, um, but it's not going to come easy mm-hmm. and, and, and because we have been um, a, a big beneficiary of a robust oil and gas sector. So the jobs we're seeing in the future may not add up to what we lose as we move mm-hmm. away from this without a more carefully developed strategy to really get into some of these emerging markets. Um, so, for example, we certainly have the infrastructure. We have the, the coastline and the ports mm-hmm. to be able to build offshore wind turbines or, or even really? onshore wind turbines, okay. right? So we can build big things and we have a history of doing this. Uh, and, and you want to do these things on the coast because some of these things are too big to make it up and down the interstates, mm-hmm. right? So, so and, and in fact, we already have some active manufacturing at that uh, in, in the New Orleans area. There is a big opportunity to grow and build that sector as we think about these kinds of installations being put up around the world. So we've mm-hmm. got some of our some of our offshore support companies that grew up in the oil and gas industry. They could pivot. There, yes, uh-huh. and, and we're starting to see some of that happening. Mm-hmm. But I think as a state, we've just really got to uh, be open to this change because it is happening whether we like it or not. And it's not right. just about federal policy. It's, it's part of a much broader global trend. And we've heard oil and gas companies, uh, you know, not, you know, even se- looking back several years, starting to talk about emissions targets and diversifying their portfolios. So this is something mm-hmm. that's happening because of stockholder pressure and global market forces. Right. Yes, we, we can speed that up or maybe slow that down a little bit with federal and state policies. Um, but we we need to be tuned in to these global market forces and look for the opportunities um, mm-hmm. to make sure that we can stay ahead of that change rather than you know falling right. behind yet again. As a private citizen, you know, when I read about things and think through what is my opinion, I realize how little I know. You know, I'd looked at getting. I just got a new car last year, and I had considered an electric car, but yet I didn't feel that I was ready to make that commitment, not because I didn't want one, but I didn't know if I'd be able to charge it in enough places. And then you start thinking about, well, they talk about taxing the roads and how electric cars, they're not paying taxes because they don't buy gas. You know, all these things, it, it, things are changing quickly. And yet we are pretty much very conservative. This is the way it's been done. Even when I interviewed Dr. Wagner last year, about tax policies. He said, you know, in his opinion, our Louisiana government was really still structured based on the model of the oil and gas industry kind of floating the boat. And we, we got to look at making some changes across the spectrum. I mean, yeah. am I speaking out of turn no, here? No, no. I mean, I think, I think you're right. And I think, again, I think it's, it's, it's good for us as a state to make sure that we're, we're staying plugged in. Not, and again, you know, recommending that people keep up with global market forces mm-hmm. that are influencing the energy industry. That's asking a lot, right? Yeah. That's kind of my job. <laughs> so one of the things that well, we, one of the things that. that we need to do at the Blanco center is help to develop programming, develop white papers or short policy briefs that can help bring mm-hmm. that information and, and keep the mm-hmm. public informed. Right. Um, and, and we're starting to do that. We've, we've did two short pro- policy briefs this year, one focusing on, 
transportation funding and, mm-hmm. and looking at some of the background and context around the debate about gas tax or, mm-hmm. or alternate forms of increasing funding for our roads. And we did another one looking at early childhood uh, education mm-hmm. and, and child care and just really trying to help illustrate how important that is to the economy and what that means as we try to get the economy back up and running right, right now. Um, so we're, we're working on that. And that's something that, that mm-hmm. I see as an important role for the Blanco Center. So bringing insights and, and best practices and research to the legislature, to state agencies, local governments as well, mm-hmm. and the public at large. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's something we'll continue to do. I will say when we think about some of these trends and changes, if, if we're not paying attention, what we're going to find is uh, – I think we'll we'll be very surprised at how quickly things have been and will continue to change. Right. So even on the front of of electric vehicles, you know, there are uh, I, I guess the first mass-produced electric vehicle that Nissan put out, major car manufacturer, was 12 years ago. Isn't that something? So it's been a while. Yeah, <laughs> it feels like it's new, and mm-hmm. you don't see them all over the roads, especially here. That's right, but it's it's it's. It is a market that is beginning to mature. Mm-hmm. It still represents a small fraction of, of total new vehicle sales, but the technology is maturing and it's getting there. And, and what's going to happen is the day after it gets there and electric cars are cheaper to buy than a gas car, mm-hmm. um, it's going to tilt the scales very quickly and, and we'll see a sea change, I think, right. on the automotive front. Like the old typewriter being you know, out of vogue <laughs> very right. quickly That's once right. people got their word processors and personal computers. So I did see reference to your white paper in April on the um, transportation. And I know that we're not surprisingly, we are behind on what our state spends on maintaining infrastructure. And uh, between that and education, in your opinion, are those things that would keep businesses from looking at Louisiana as a place to invest in? Are those things that you know, we read about what companies look for, but those are the kind of things that make a difference, right? When you're looking at a new manufacturing, that's right. That's right. That's right. I think I think you know, th- those are things that will consistently show up on on lists of you know top ten things that businesses are looking for, and and I think again, as especially as we think about Louisiana's precarious position in mm-hmm. this energy transition, mm-hmm. you know, we've gone through uh, a long stretch now. Um, really even predating Hurricane Katrina, where the state really hadn't, has not seen a lot of economic growth. And, um, and employment and population um, have, have continued to slip further and further behind the kinds of growth we've seen even elsewhere across the Southeast. Um, so we've, we've got to be very careful and target the kinds of things that can help improve quality of life, and, and make the state a more attractive place for business to be located as well. Um, and I think even just looking at how this p- pandemic has started to shift that calculus, again, we've got to be we've got to be nimble and we've got to keep up with some of these rapidly changing trends. Um, and so as we think about this massive shift to remote work, mm-hmm. we know that's going to change the calculus for how people decide where they live. There are a lot of Louisiana residents or former residents who have, have gone on pursuing great job opportunities elsewhere who would love to get back home to Louisiana. And I think there's an opportunity now more so than ever to get some of them back here, even Mm -hmm. if they stick with their same employer. Um, And so I think it's also time for us to be thinking a little more carefully about how we can make investments in quality of life 
And that's something that I think local governments really need to take up um, mm-hmm. in terms of you know the, the kinds of things we can do to make sure that our cities are really great places to live. Right, right. What other issues are you looking at? We haven't talked about criminal justice reform. Is that something that's front and center now, especially with the news about are we going to go back and retry you know, whatever it is, 1,500 or more cases where there was less than a unanimous verdict. Do you guys get involved and speak well, on those I, issues? I'll, you know, we've, I, I've been working on some academic research related to the topic for, for a number of years now, and I'm currently working on a project with uh, some researchers at Tulane looking at how, what some of the lasting effects of some of the post-Katrina school reforms in New Orleans have been. Oh, okay. So there's a group there led by Doug Harris, the uh, Education Research Alliance for New Orleans, that has really studied all of the reforms in New Orleans post-Katrina through many different lenses. And we're working together on a paper that that tries to see how that, how school reforms specifically have affected criminal activity in later years. Uh-huh. Um, and so... So that's ongoing work that I'm involved in. And I'll also say we've been, you know, kind of developed a real close partnership with the Department of Criminal Justice and done a couple of collaborative grant applications there. Um, we have two professorships at the Blanco Center that we've awarded this year for the first time. These are new mm-hmm. professorships on campus. And, and one of those will go to Dave Kay, the uh, department head in criminal justice. And that'll be, um, I think, a great way for us to to, to build up better capacity there, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really have a strong partner in that area. So not, not somewhere that we're very active just yet, but somewhere that we're definitely right. working to develop some capacity. That must be fascinating because it's been a generation since Katrina for that, for that subset of young children. That's right. So if they didn't get what they needed, they could very well end up incarcerated. That's right. That's right. And, and, and the, that, study also really shows just how interconnected so many of these topics are because mm-hmm. we're looking at how things that are happening in the schools how does that really lead to hopefully lead to changes in criminal justice um, and um, and and really it, it, New Orleans is an interesting case study not just because Katrina did happen but but Katrina kind of broke down all of the walls and really shown the light Literally on what was going on. Yeah, that's right. And and, yeah. and it opened everybody's minds to 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 a, a much greater willingness to try new things mm-hmm. and experiment a little bit. And again, I think everybody involved certainly takes first and foremost how serious it is to make sure that that we're giving our kids the best opportunities we can. But sometimes you just got to try something new um, mm-hmm. and see if that works better. If 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 the past hasn't been working well, try something new. And so. New Orleans, as a school district, had one of the lowest rates of participation in public school system of any district in the country. And and after Katrina, that trend is still generally in place, but we've seen this massive swell of charter schools really coming in and a very different type of school system uh, mm-hmm. come together. And so, so we're, we're just part of trying to understand how has exactly has that worked? What are the broader implications of that? Um, and, and it takes time and, mm-hmm. and we still don't have an answer to that particular question that I'm working on yet with regard to criminal justice reform, uh, but we'll get a good thoroughly researched answer yeah. and we will share it with you all as soon yeah. as we get it. Do you have a favorite topic that you like to research? Like what, what do you gravitate to for fun? Well, I, as an economist, I think a majority of things I've ever done have, have been tackling something directly related to the understanding of the economy or how we grow the economy. Um, I think uh, my training really uh, 
is by and large as a labor economist. And so that workforce side, that mm-hmm. education all the way up through higher education and, and workforce training, that's another area that, that I've done a lot of work in mm-hmm. um, that I think is a critical piece to that longer term economic growth story. Um, so that's something that, that I always tend to gravitate towards. You enjoy it. Yeah, and I do enjoy. Stephen, two weeks ago, I had Ted Kurgan in from the um, Kurgan Brothers Sonic. And he and Gary Wilkerson were talking about how they are having major trouble hiring people. Now, this isn't a higher education. This is more of a you know service industry workforce. But it's been amazing to me how things have changed so quickly with the rental cars not being available people not necessarily wanting to work or not being able to find enough workers. And then, as I mentioned, I was in New Orleans and it was packed. You couldn't get into restaurants. People were everywhere. These trends happen so quickly. And I guess as you study it, is this something you would have ever anticipated? Like you knew about Katrina, but who would have thought we'd have a pandemic, you know, but are these trends that economists know that they can track you know, the the big shocks are, are rarely things that you can actually see coming, right? So so you didn't see Katrina hit until it hit. You mm-hmm. didn't know how bad it was going to be Til the levees until broke. the levees yeah. broke. That's <laughs> right. And and I don't know that, that there were was anybody who predicted a global health pandemic in Although some 2020. did. Some movie makers did. Certainly, you know? yeah. So it's, it's not a completely, <laughs> uh, you know, unexpected concept. Um, but... But you don't see it coming. But that being said, a lot of the the challenges that you're talking about are great illustrations of how important it is to have smart policy, Mm -hmm. to have well thought out policy and to bring in a broader group of people to talk about it and think through it. Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea of enhanced unemployment benefits makes a lot of sense when we think about the impossibility of huge segments of the economy. Right to find a job several months ago. Mm-hmm. But again, the way that works and the way the policy was designed by putting a hard date on when that would expire, we now have an environment where we've got people getting very generous unemployment benefits and they're not as interested in going back to a minimum wage or very low wage job. Working and, and for that's, less. Yeah, yeah, and that's perfectly rational. <laughs> and that's it the is. way we designed the policy right. as, as a country. Um, obviously, we're seeing some states start to rethink that a little bit mm-hmm. and maybe think about, you know, the expectation of how much longer we think people would will stay on those unemployment benefits. Can we maybe think about targeting some dollars towards a bonus system that would encourage people mm-hmm. to get back to work and change the calculus? Um, but this is a great illustration of how much incentives can matter and sort of the economics of human behavior <laughs> um, and, and making sure that we're thinking through these things uh-huh. when we develop our policies. Right. Well, for people that want to know more about what you do, um, Dr. Barnes and the Kathleen Babineau Blanco Public Policy Center, where, where should they go to see more of your research and what you do? We we do have a website up um, that we're continuing to develop and expand, and that's that you can get directly to that with the following address, blancocenter.louisiana.edu, um, and that'll take you right to it. And it, today we've got a couple of policy briefs up there that I mentioned earlier um, which are really designed to be a shorter, easy, easy read. You know, mm-hmm. it, we, we've got a lot packed in there, so it might feel a little bit dense, but in five or six pages, you're going to get a pretty good perspective on this issue. Mm-hmm. And then a whole page of references for the interested reader. If you want to go read 100 pages right. of, of, of in-depth studies that we look to to make sure that we've got 
a really mm-hmm. solid piece there. Um, but some of this longer term research, which is really the focus of what we're doing, you know, we, we'll be working on something for a year, year and a half and develop this much more robust understanding around a topic. Um, we'll be adding some of those as well. And over time, really develop that library of research okay. there. And I understand that you're hiring. You need research associates. That's right. That's we, exciting. Yeah, it's, it's, it is exciting. And, uh, you know, we are about to go through a big, uh, a big sea change here where we'll be adding three, potentially four staff people mm-hmm. over the summer, um, you know, all on the research side. So I think this is great news for the Blanco Center. You know, we want to continue to expand so we have more capacity to really tackle these challenging issues across right. a number of different fronts. Right. What background did the associates need, you know, research associates. So the great thing about hiring multiple positions at the same time is that we've got a little bit of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, at this stage, we're really looking for kind of a master's level researcher, somebody who's got some quantitative skills. um, But we we want people with a mix of interests, Um, you know, some quantitative skills, but also across that group of folks, maybe somebody with a little more of a qualitative background. A lot of the evaluation work that we're doing involves not only heavy data analysis, but interviewing some of the people involved in that program, mm-hmm. really trying to understand how the program was rolled out and are there particular ways in which that program was designed and stood up that made it either very successful or those may have been the things that turned out to be challenges that, yeah. that, that we could improve upon next time. Right. Um, so we're looking for a mix of folks, uh, but, but, you know, Generally, more of a social science background. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, some of the master's degree in economics looks great in my book. Of course. Uh, yep. But, you know, political science, mm-hmm. sociology, public policy, public affairs. You know, there's a, there's a variety of different programs that, that, that all have that leaning towards an interest in policy, some quantitative skills, mm-hmm. um, and, and most importantly for us, someone who's really going to be passionate about working on these kinds of problems. Well, I want to shout out to two people I know that are fine individuals that work with you, David Neef, who helped me set this up with you, and then Anna Osland, I knew from one of Katie Anna. She's got that, she worked with them on education. I'm not sure what she's doing for you, but just a fine mind and a quick, quick. Absolutely. So. They're both phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So happy to have them on the team. You're lucky. So, so for now, you're at um, Abdallah Hall over in the area near the Light Center and um, where Lita is. And in the future, we look forward to watching as your department and your um, the center grows. So I want to wish you the best of luck, Dr. Stephen Barnes. And thank you for being here today and sharing what you do. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. I want to thank our listeners also and for the people that make this possible. First, Iberi Bank, which is now a part of First Horizon. Oshner. Lafayette General, we thank you so much for your continued generosity. And of course, Raider and Jason Sikora in particular, who mixes our tape and makes it sound professional. You can listen to Dr. Stephen Barnes' interview at discoverlafayette.net. And I think this might be our 216th interview. So we've got a lot of interviews. If you're interested in others, we've got the guest list on the website. Or even better, please consider subscribing to Discover Lafayette. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Jan Swift. Thank you.